Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, April 10th, 2012, and our returning special guest is Jennifer Fox. Jennifer, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, everyone. I'm really delighted to have you on the show again. Um, it's like having an old friend on the show that I've never met. <laughs> I was thinking about that. Because I reread portions of your book and I just really reappreciated what you had written. Thank you. There's a lot in there. It's like three books in one. I almost wondered if you shouldn't re-release it under another title to give it, you know, to give it sort of a boost and for people to read it again. Because you don't really need to to rewrite it. It's just such good content. Well, thank you. Actually, the whole first part of that book is kind of lost in that title. Um, the, the problem is lost in the solution. So I've taken some of those points and I'm crafting them back and, and working on a book proposal now for a book called Bored Stupid. I actually have an idea for you. But, uh, let, me, let me do a pre-show stuff and then I'll get to that idea. So the Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project, web20labs.com. These are projects I run intended to give opportunities for conversation amongst those who are interested in education. Everything from Classroom 2.0 to the worldwide virtual conferences. All listed at web20labs.com. Thanks to Blackboard Collaborate for providing this room. Classroom 2.0 is celebrating its fifth anniversary. So much fun going on. Uh, we do have the book project, a crowdsourced book on using social media and Web 2.0 in the classroom. Go to the book it's the, in the menu for Classroom 2.0. We'll be taking submissions through the 21st of this month. Everything's getting published. It's just a blast. We have some great contributions so far. They're going to start trickling out in, um, in a couple of days. Uh, also, we're doing a project with PBS NewsHour, an ed incubator project to help them develop a good teacher council for their educational offerings. Uh, just click on Ed Incubator at the top there. Coming up at the ISTE show, a ton of fun. This great shadow conference that we do at ISTE, all of these crowdsourced activities that start Saturday with the all-day unconference. Used to be called EduBloggerCon, is now Social EdCon. Do not miss this. If you are in the San Diego area or planning to come to ISTE, look at ISTEUnplugged.com. It's the Bloggers Cafe. It's the All Day Unconference. We're doing a three-hour unconference on global education. Um, just a ton of fun. Uh, even a, something called ISTE Live, where if you've never presented before, we give you a place to present a live audience and stream feed out. So please do join us. Coming up on the 21st of April, our Social Learning Summit, a free worldwide conference on social media and Web 2.0, 70 sessions uh, sponsored by Discovery Education. This is free. Anybody can come. SocialLearningSummit.com or go to Classroom20.com and you'll see the link. Please do join us. It should be just terrific. Uh, Future of Libraries Conference is being sponsored again by San Jose State University. That's October 3rd through the 5th. The Global Education Conference, November 12th to 16th, is now being sponsored by our founding sponsor, IRON. Uh, which is terrific. Be the third year for that conference. Five days, 24 hours a day, three to 400 sessions. It's just a marvelous event. And we're waiting dates for the Gaming and Education Conference and the Alternative Education Conference. But keep keep listening. Lots to come. Uh, coming up Thursday night, Mark Tucker talks about his book, Surpassing Shanghai. We're going to go from one end of the spectrum to the other. Uh, next week, Tracy uh, Weiland-Dalganti talks about Society 3.0. I can't wait for that 
um, look at sort of how the web and internet are changing the world. And John Hunter and Chris Farina are going to come on and talk about the World Peace and other fourth grade achievements movie that's just come out. And I haven't been paying attention to the chat, so I'm going to look right now in case I've missed something. But Peggy's here, so she's always great at answering things. Thank you, Peggy. Okay, if you've missed any of our shows, they are all recorded. Um, last week we heard from Joseph Grenny, who's one of the co-authors of several best-selling books uh, around crucial conversations and change, and had a really interesting conversation about their material, and then followed up with several fascinating emails with him about that material and its impact on education. Kind of a light crowd that night, and I'm kind of intrigued by that, but um, there's, there's, a, there's at core there's some very interesting principles um, that I that I think we're going to end up um, will, will be themes for a lot of what we talk about in the future. Before that, Howard Rangel talked about his what I have to say is a brilliant book, Net Smart. I really love it, and uh, and then Dick Gale talked about appreciative inquiry and positive deviance and the programs uh, that they're running in California. Uh, anyway, lots more, all recorded in full Illuminate versions and in MP3 format. So this is where we give you a chance to let us know where you're participating from. So I'm giving you permission now to modify the whiteboard, and you do that by looking for the icons to the left of the map. You're looking for the star, the second one down. Double click on that, and then click on the map. And feel free to shout out in the chat as well. It's fun to know the time and the temperature. As many of you know, I'm in Park City, Utah this year, and it was a balmy 70 degrees, uh, although it is supposed to snow again this week. but. Talk about bizarre spring weather and an early end to winter, unfortunately, for for skiing purposes. And Peggy, let's just make a decision. We're going to use social edcon as the hashtag for social edcon. I love it. 94 in Phoenix. Wow. Wherever you're listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we sure do appreciate your taking the time. And uh, and I really appreciate Jennifer coming on the show again, and um, lots of fun to talk about here with you. Okay, so here's my idea. You ready? I couldn't hear your response, but I'm going to assume you're ready. I'm ready. I'm going to do a drum roll. Okay, so have you heard of these massive uh, open online courses? Um, well, I don't know. I've heard of a lot of online courses, but I'm not sure what massive open online courses are, like a tsunami course or? <laughs> right. These are kind of a something you do, it's sort of a free offering, you say anybody can attend, we're going to put the syllabus out there, and you know our goal is to impact some very large number of people and provide them with material. I think we should do Your Child's Strengths as a massive open online course. That would be awesome. Uh, I, I could do that. Um. <laughs> I'll put you on the spot. But anyway, uh, We'll we'll kind of keep that as a brainstorm, and then uh, you and I can connect later. But again, going through the book again, really thinking about this, I thought, you know, I'd love for there to be a way to really leverage some publicity around the work that you did here, and um, and that may be one way to do it. So um, 
tell us about your your change and where you are now and what you're doing. Well, I um, you know I I traveled around with the tour of Your Child's Strengths and did lots of speaking and talking and writing and then um, was asked to write the differentiated instruction book of lists and um, I. I just really got tired of talking about it and promoting and and traveling and really wanted to to do it and wanted to see the work in action and wanted to be right in the center with kids so that I could look and have my complete body of work include a school that um, that really did education in the way that I think it um, engages kids strengths the most. So I um, I looked around and I thought, well, I'm going to have to start my own school. Um, and I found a school in South Lake, Texas, the Clarendon School, that had um, a Montessori, AMI Montessori, up until sixth grade. And then they needed to have a middle school and a high school added to it. And they interviewed me and they liked my ideas and they said, you can do whatever you want. Let's let's go. So we have been working this full year to put together a program for the middle and upper school, and we've called it the Global Strengths Program. So I'm I'm putting the the concepts into practice. So it was really interesting for me to look at the school and and then also look at your move and to try and put it into context because it is a shift from being sort of this thought leader to actually having your feet on the ground. At a school, and and part of it is I mean, we all have to make a living, right? So I figure you're in that same boat with the rest of us. Um, but I also wondered uh, if there wasn't kind of a shadow story, and I'm hoping you'll tell me that there wasn't. But I'll be curious if there was. Um, uh, when I read your child's strengths, you know, I sort of had high hopes that this would become the primary narrative around education. And it feels as though you know we consistently see these really sort of thoughtful, deep perceptions of teaching and learning um, being the secondary narrative and never the one that kind of takes over. And um, and I've wondered if um, do you see that your work uh, at Clarendon you know becoming sort of a flagship for a larger movement, or is it just this is where I can make a difference in the world? Even if it's just in one place, it's you know it's one starfish I'm throwing back into the sea. Well, one thing that became really apparent with the book was that people kept asking me, "What do we do? We love this, these concepts. We love what you're talking about. We love the book, but but how do we do it?" And um, so I thought, I gotta, I actually have to do it. And um, there's a couple of things with this particular school, the Clarendon School, is that. Um, it's a Montessori school, and Montessori does not have a program for middle school and high school. So most Montessori schools right now are adopting an IB program. And the reason they're doing that is because it's internationally focused. However, the curriculum is really test driven, um, and it's still really um, Socratic in its nature. And it's not necessarily 21st century, I don't think. It doesn't speak to all kids' strengths. It still gets that sort of academically inclined kid engaged. So uh, part of what I'm doing is trying to set an example for these Montessorians in terms of what they should do that really follow the principles up through adulthood. Um, but then beyond that, since it's not a Montessori school, um, I, I care deeply about kids. And one of the things, one of the reasons why some of these thoughts don't catch on is because throughout the past five years, 
everybody keeps saying, that's great, but do you have something we can bring to scale? Do you have something we can bring to scale? And basically what they're talking about are internet tools. But there's no content to put into those tools. There's some, it's developing, but the tool has so fast preceded the content that goes into it that I thought I need to work on the content. Um, and so developing this curriculum is, is really a, a move to work on the content and to take a model that will hopefully be, um, can you hear me? Absolutely. Are you having trouble? Okay. Yeah, well, I got a little error signal, but if you can hear me, that's fine. Um, so I want to take the content and, and make it relevant and then hopefully this model can be used. There's a lot of models out there that I've looked at that are great, but they're just not quite getting, they're still, they're still in these sort of siloed subject areas and they're trying to make projects work, and, but there's still these real heavy walls up about what kids can learn and have to learn and have to accomplish. And I just really want to tear those down and show people how not only can those work, but kids can be engaged and produce work that's really meaningful. Did you look at other models for post-elementary education um, and, and evaluate them? I mean, uh, did you look at big picture schools or others and sort of where did they play into your uh, building of the program, the Global Strengths Program? Um, one of my main influences for, throughout most of my life as an educator has been the big picture schools. What Elliot Washer and Dennis Lickie have done up there is, it's, it's great. Um, it's, um, and, and, and they're trying to move that out to scale. I think that the difference between um, what I'm doing and what they're doing is, is pretty nominal. It's, but it's, you know, um, they, they serve a different population than I serve. Um, I, I, I find that some really great things that happen out there get sidelined because, and this will sound pretty counterintuitive, but they get sidelined because they're done in public schools. So you have all these people in independent schools who don't feel a need to change. Um, and it's sort of like they have this idea that all those kids, they need to do all these different things because they're so far behind. And, um, and if, um, but we don't really need to do anything differently. And I think that is, is a place where change absolutely has to be pressed on and happen and, and demonstrate um, success for kids because whether or not, you know, we like it, most people who have influence in this country, their kids are actually in independent schools. So um, I'm sort of a little bit of a renegade within that community, um, which doesn't mean I'm not all for public schools and the equity and the justice that has to go along with that, but I'm, I'm carving my niche out in an independent school world. So one of the pieces of the big picture model that I've been particularly taken with is the internship piece. Have you crafted that at all into yours, or have you decided that's not you're going to be your focus? The internship piece is a big focus, but when it happens is, um, is a little different than big picture. So in the, um, in the Global Strengths Program, it happens in the junior year, and it's a six-week internship. Um, and um, be, be, before that, it, that's one of the things that, and I think big picture schools are all different because I've talked to a lot of people who are running these as it starts to franchise out. But I think that um, the essence of the community at the school and the, and the having, teaching kids how to work together across multiple platforms is an essential piece of learning for the future. 
So going out and actually doing the work with mentors is good if you, you know, if you can make that happen in a really productive way. But the amount of time spent doing that is truncated in my school a little bit. So um, I'm interested in this issue of scale. And I'm wondering how much of a red herring scale is. I mean, the more that I kind of dive into the potential of the internet and uh, for student agency and um, for the kinds of engaged learning opportunities that they can have, I, I find I'm less and less interested in scale and more and more interested in um, relationships that help the students take advantage of those opportunities. Sort of where does scale play into the story for you now? Um, I'm with you on the word scale. I think that's a, a big business um, idea. How do we get more money out of this? But I think if you're really truly invested in education um, and education for the future, what you start to see is that um, there are so many ways to do it, and as many ways as there are kids. So if you're going to really personalize learning, there's going to be so many options out there for people, which is, you know, in my in my mind, it's really the most sort of capitalist way is to get as many opportunities out there and let them attract the kind of kids that you're looking for. So we are not a, be, a school that is going to be all for everybody. Um, we, we're really clear about who we are and who we're not. Um, and I think that what we're going to see in the future is actually the destruction of the large-scale high school. Um, and that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty big battle to climb up. But as, as I'm trying to get kids to come into our school, one of the pushbacks on parents is, there's not enough kids here. And my question is, where do you get the idea that there has to be a certain large number of kids? Because it's going to be rare in your life that you're dealing with gigantic crowds doing things that are incredibly meaningful. Um, I say to parents all the time, you know, the offices of the future have fewer people in them more. There's not going to be 40 people in your office. Some, for some there are, but a lot of people work in pretty small offices over 10 to 20 years. And so the idea of spending your high school years with maybe 50 kids doesn't seem to me to be such a far-fetched idea. It actually seems like a pretty good idea. And it's not just work. I mean, we, we spend time in families that are very small for, you know, 30, 40 years with people who are actually, you know, our in-laws, people we didn't choose that you have to get along with and you have to know how to, to work with. And you're not going to learn that in a big comprehensive high school. Um. So it sounds like scale is potentially one of the vestiges of the factory model. It's just sort of a way that we typically have thought about how things get done is that we sort of move quickly to this concept of scale. And, and maybe in part we're, you know, the healthy piece of this is just really questioning that concept at all. Yeah, I think that question should be definitely um, unpacked and looked at as to what that means beyond, you know, selling mass quantities of materials to schools and program. Um, it's funny to me because we always compare our successes and our failures to, um, our perceived successes and failures to other countries. and. We look at Finland and Sweden and, and these countries, and you know, if you just look at the size of the countries and the amount of jobs that come out of those countries versus us, it, it's ridiculous to think that we should have one um, one program as though the, as though the highway system were somehow equal to to how we treat um, young people's futures. 
Larry raises a really interesting question in the chat. He says, it's like a restaurant. If there's not many people there, maybe it's not that good. If it's crowded, then people like it or are using it or there's funding. So that's a really interesting question, which is, you know, it feels like, I think we're going to get to this, but it feels like a lot of what parents expect of schools is not actually necessarily where, where you and I would think we're headed. So popularity may not be a very good measure at this point. I think what's important is, um, you know, people are obsessed with comparing each other, and never, and more so than anywhere in the schools. Um, you know, they're comparing scores, they're comparing resumes, they're comparing everything, and these comparisons don't actually answer the essential question. And the essential question is, what makes a good life? What do you want? to do with your life. And I actually think that good lives are comprised of meaningful work and meaningful relationships. And if we can focus our schools and our education on getting to that end, then you're going to find all kinds of different answers to that. So um, I don't know that, um, I, I think that the idea that the best one's going to have the most people there is, is, is a matter of taste. Because there's certainly a lot more people at McDonald's than there are at some, you know, great organic restaurants. Doesn't mean it's better. Yeah, and sort of intriguingly, I was thinking of my favorite organic restaurant, and it's actually a relatively small venue. So crowded for that venue is very different than crowded for, you know, a large scale chain restaurant. That's right. Okay, so tell us a little bit about how. Uh, and you have a lot of exercises in the book. This is a great wealth of resources that are in the back of the book. Um, how are you um, helping students to discover their strengths? What, what are you actually doing in the school to do this? Um, well, just, so, just to remind you, the school actually launches this program in the fall. So we're preparing now. Um, there's two things we'll do. Uh, first of all, the kids will all take um, strength inventories. So we'll keep personal profiles on all of the students and determine what it is that energizes them. Remember, strength is something that not that you're good at, not that you're interested in, but something that actually energizes you enough to keep your focus, something that you're naturally innately drawn to doing. So we'll decipher those through batteries of questions and, and, and tests and, um, and uh, exercises to figure out what those strengths are. And then I have developed an, a course, and the course is called Strong Planet. And what it is is it's a guy. He's a, um, a guy who used to be on Sesame Street. His name is Alamade Faison. His brother's on House or something, show like that. And um, he has six. He has six lessons, big lessons, and then it's divided into 25 teaching chunks. And he's this guy who's uh, this hip cool guy who lives in this planet um, off the earth um, because the earth got too weak for him and he's strong. And he goes through um, all of these little lessons and, and delivers this content to the kids via, you know, uh, on screen. And then they actually participate in the activities. So I've taken that whole curriculum in the back of the book and translated it into a DVD um, delivery mechanism with a, with a host rather than a teacher. 
the host being someone that the kids can relate to because, you know, kids don't really care what adults say as much. They care much more what a cool, hip young person would say. So um, I thought it best be coming out of that person's mouth. And, and that actually, Steve, was an attempt to take something to scale. Um, you know, I, I can teach these classes, but, in, but just putting, putting that information in the wrong person's hand will, will sink it. And, and I think that the, the kinds of things that the curriculum goes through, you know, goes through determining what your strengths are, determining um, how you can put your strengths to work on, for a good of a team, determining what, how you get along in relationships, teaching kids how to act online, because that's where most of the relationships are going to take place. Um, it's where it takes place. Um, teaching kids um, how to figure out, you know, finances and, and how to figure out where they're going to make their contribution in life. All of that is, is important stuff. So the way that it's delivered has to be cool and important. And so that's what I've created. And that, that's one class. That class will be taken as a seminar for each kid throughout the four years that they're there. So the question in the chat is, uh, what age? And if I've heard you correctly, the elementary portion of the school is Montessori, so this will be middle and high school, right? Yes. Um, we're going to have two groups of kids, 7th, 8th, and 9th graders, 50 of those, and 10th, 11th, and 12th graders, 50 of those. And they will act in two separate, instead of four grades, there will be two units of that, those age range kids. Interesting. So we've talked a lot on the show about a concept that I'm calling fire your textbook meaning we just don't have a need for textbooks anymore. If we can, you know, we can aggregate original content from the web, we can create places for conversation. Um, I know you're interested in getting people to stop teaching traditional content. Uh, does, does that match up at all with this throwing away of the textbook? And how are you thinking you're going to accomplish that? Oh, I had my best day walking through the school and the teacher saying, what do we do with these textbooks all around, big history books, big English books, you know, those big, huge textbooks. And we just said, throw them away. Just get rid of them. Dump them. Um, but the next step after that is, and this is figurative, but, in, but it's not, is fire the teachers. Um, you don't need teachers who know everything anymore. Um, if I was looking for the right teacher to teach this um, inaugural thing next year, it occurred to me that I might not find someone and I would have to teach it. And then I started to go through all of the subject matter I didn't know and have to figure out, well, how would I figure out what to, how to teach them? And it's all there. You just need to have somebody who is a master researcher, an excellent facilitator who understands the questions but doesn't necessarily need to know the answers because the answers are all out there. Um, so I think the teachers of the future for middle and high school are going to be people who are not specialists in subject areas, but generalists who know how to find information and lead kids to finding their own information. Yeah, you're reminding me of a couple of shows we've done, uh, Howard Rheingold and Kathy Davidson, uh, both at a college level, but where they essentially have the students help create the course as they go along. It gives some structure and framework, but you know the active participation of the students becomes a part of the the value of the course, and and therefore depends less on an authoritative teacher and more on a good facilitator. That's right. There's some things they have to learn that the for the first um, 
month of school, they're going to learn basic tools. And I think the tools of the future that kids absolutely should learn in order to get them ahead in life are one, filmmaking and film editing. Because it's the um, it's a communicator as much as writing is on the web. And if you can make your own films, you're way ahead of the game on what you're doing on the internet. The other thing is Photoshop. Um, kids actually who can learn to quickly and um, skillfully manipulate photography and be able to put it up onto the internet in a multitude of ways. Um, that's, an, that's a basic skill in, in my mind today. And then the other thing that I really think they should immediately learn are um, Excel and spreadsheets because they're going to have to compile information and they're going to have to keep track of a lot of um, databases in order to execute the problems that they begin with. So we have a suite of um, essential tools that the kids will need specific training in for the first three weeks of school before they really, you know, dive into any of these projects. So this leads me to a question that, uh, that will kind of shift gears in the interview a little. But it's the question of parental expectations, test scores, and the like. Um, you know, how are you thinking that you'll deal with um, those perceptions? Will it need to be parents who understand and come in with an understanding that this is a different methodology that may or may not result in the same outcome? Are you promising that the methodology will result in positive test scores? Or uh, you know, what's your thinking in terms of the relationship with the parents? I'm glad you asked that. We have a joke around the school that um, Maria Montessori was so successful because she only taught orphans. But um, the um, parents come in in a variety of different um, flavors in terms of what their expectations, hopes, and dreams are for their kids. Um, a lot of people come to the school, and you know, even though they believe in what we're going to do and they want it, and their child's eyes are lit up. They can't help but say, what about tests? How are you going to test them? How, how are they comparing up with other kids? And um, test, we, you can teach kids to take a test, and, and we will. And I sat in, a, in the office today with a parent who came in, um, a parent of a four-year-old, and they said, well, you know, what about, what about testing? And I said to them, what test actually will make a big impact on their lives? What score do you need to know? And the only score that anyone can really come up with that's going to be taken with you or, or make an impact on where you're going next happens to be the SAT score. And we can teach a course in that and teach kids to do well on that test um, because it's, it's a teachable test. Any other score, the only reason that you're taking those tests is so that your district can, can prove um, that, it's, that it's valuable and then they get funding sources. So. Um, People who come, the parents who come to the school, a school like ours, are parents who are looking for something to brighten their kids' eyes. So they want, this, was a, this is an incredible world, and it's an incredible time to be in the world. There is so much opportunity. There are so many things to do. There's so much you know, fire going on about learning that kids are going to school and feeling bored, hammered, um, you know, they're feeling anxious. They're feeling like they, they just want to get through it so they can do the things they really like. That's not good enough. So we get parents who they come and they say, I want my child engaged. I want my kid to want to go to school. Can you do that for me? And, and to me, that's, that's the biggest and most wonderful challenge and, and best gift is, is parents who really 
want their kids to be engaged in learning and thus engaged in life. It does seem like there's been kind of a theme in some of the interviews that schools are spending time helping parents get the vision. And I've, you know, I've thought about sort of book groups and the like. Have you read Cal Newport's How to Be a High School Superstar? No, I haven't, but I'll, I'll certainly pick it up. It addresses this issue. This issue is huge. Parents don't understand. They don't, they, they question, but they question based on illogical questions. So they, they always say because they did it a certain way, this is how they want their kids to do it. But, but their kids aren't doing anything else in any other part of their lives like they did when they were kids. It just doesn't make, it's just not a logical argument. I really want to follow up with you on this and see what you end up doing and how you craft it because it does seem to me like spending a concerted time with the parents leverages quite a bit if you can um, help them to catch that same vision. Um, what about um, the student learning profiles as a parent leverage tool? I mean, we often think of student learning profiles without kind of thinking about who would actually use them and for what purpose. Um, are you, at the, at the school, are they using them at the lower grade levels? And as you uh, have thought about how you would use them at the higher grade levels, um, have you thought about the degree to which they become an empowerment tool for the parents? Um, I think the most important thing is that they become an empowerment tool for the student. Um, and it's self-knowledge about how you learn and what you're interested in and what your goals are is, is really important. Um, to parents, it's a communication. Those are communication tools. And really, they're just confidence builders, um, helping parents understand that their kids are on track and doing, all, and doing OK. Um, you know, these accountability pieces that we talk about all the time, in my mind, and, the, and the, the argument of getting parents to buy in goes away the minute that the products start coming out. So um, I know that within one year of opening this upper school, we're going to have kids who have inventions. We're going to have kids who have created a robot that works and has a, a single purpose. We're going to have kids who, at the end of their couple years there, are going to have a bunch of different films, websites, and, and a business to run. And hopefully, they'll be bringing in real revenue. We're not playing here. We're, we're going to do real world work. And so once you see that, it sort of takes away the question of, well, how are their test scores, or how are they, or how are they measuring up? All of the questions that surround education have to do with the lack of a visual outcome product to be seen. And so that's where I, we can end the conversation by showing really great work. It, it, it stops the conversation in its tracks when a kid produces, look at this book I wrote and look where I published. You know, it, it just it, it, changes, it changes the conversation to have the kids actually really produce real world, meaningful, good work that's challenging and hard to do. Fascinating. OK, so uh, if we think about this theme, of, of change and and how we facilitate it and um, you know for you in, in the school particularly the body of work is going to be 
uh, you know, kind of the, the the moment of understanding. I'm also thinking sort of on a larger scale, are there ways that we could take some of these principles and use them for larger social leverage? Uh, what I love about the individual student plan or strength-based profile is the degree to which that would allow parents each year to come to the teachers in the parent-teacher conference communicating more from the parent than the teacher communicating to the parent. The parent communicating more than the teacher communicates. Sort of, this is my child and this is what they do. What about students? Are there larger ways that we could be empowering students outside of your particular school? Um, it feels as though it, students don't have their own vision of their, their own capabilities. Well, um, the student's voice needs to really be in that conference, is I believe. Um, once you know you're able to talk about and reflect on your learning, you should be driving that conference. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of student-led conferences and student-led presentations um, of learning. But I, I think really at the heart of your question, I think has to do with how we view, understand um, time and how time relates to learning. So that I think everybody can remember the first time they went into, they got on the internet and you know, they dialed up and got into maybe a chat room and how time just went away. They, they, may, they may have spent hours on that. Um, and I certainly hear a concern that parents have regarding kids um, playing games for just hours. But the reality is, is when you're pulled in and you're engaged in something and you're learning, Time units of focus are 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 different. It's, it's and and how we schedule and how we work our lives today. I think that's the biggest change that we're going to see. And having to get rid of the idea that a unit of focus is an hour or 40 minutes, and then move on to the next thing. And I think that will change our work. And I think it's already changing our work. And I think that will be the big driving change in school. So we don't have, you know, Carnegie units anymore instead. And, and we might not even have, you know, the day go the same way. Um, and we also know that kids' focus times vary during the day based on age and sex and, and, and interest and just on their personality. So you've got some kids who focus intensely at night and learn a lot at night. And then you have kids who learn in the morning. And then that shifts over time. So I really think that we're, and then sometimes people learn things in a quick spurt right away, and then you know a huge amount, and then they don't learn anything for a little while after that. They need sort of a physical outside. And I think the more that we actually can start to study that and start to program our lives against those outcomes and, and understanding when and how we learn and how long it takes to learn something, I think that that's the single biggest change that we can see societally with um, the future of education. So I really appreciate you kind of keep bringing me back to the student. And, and I'm, I want to give some structure to my question about the parents. And because I see them in concert, meaning if we're going to change the narratives uh, around education, uh, it feels like both the parents and the students have to have kind of their own movements to make that shift. You know, the students have to believe in their own sort of agency and the value of that, and the parents need to believe in it as well. And there's a line in your book, and I'm, I'm not going to quote it correctly, because I've retranslated it into, um, your child is not defective. But you say something in the book that's like that, 
which is a lot of parents get this message that their children are defective. So I'm wondering how, how you build larger narratives, both for students and parents, um, around this. And is, are, you know, have you seen ways in which people are catching on where you say this could actually become the narrative that redefines how we think about education? I think that goes back to the accomplishment and the success. So when you ask parents, what do you want for your kids, the answer usually is you want them, they want to go to a good college. And you know, the question you have to ask after that is, why do you want them to go to a good college? Um, is it, you know, what is it that you really want for your kids? And, and I don't know that people, you know, we talk about the best curriculum is curriculum that's designed backwards with the end in mind first. Parents rarely talk about their kids as fully accomplished, fleshed out adults and what that looks like. And then they very rarely compare that to their own experience. So that, um, you know, if the kid doesn't do four hours of homework a night, is their life really wrecked? I mean, parents think that these things. So the question is, what is your life supposed to look like when you're an adult? Uh, and and that's the, that's the conversation because once once parents can understand what well, I want my child to be and they can list those things and then the, you can line that up with what the child wants to be, um, you, you can shift the course of, of of what they're doing. But but I got to bring that even back further, Steve, to the idea that um, the products are really important. What kids do and and what the outcome is. Is, is extremely motivating to people. And, and I think a lot of the worry and conversation dies down when, when you see it happen. And a, a place where this has been exploited and actually just ballooned out a little too much is in the realm of sports and um, in the realm of like kids who do just a, an intense focus on fine arts because they're going to be stars. Um, those people are driven that parents don't have to, if your kid's a sports star, it's very little convincing that you need to do to, to, um, in, in this culture to, to have them stay that way, you know, because parents see that outcome. They want to see the kid successful, doing something successful. So, and, and where my pushback is, is I want to see the kid doing what the kid wants to do is successful because unfortunately kids tend to want to please their parents or their teachers more than they want to fulfill their own dreams. So parents have to learn to step back and allow that child to be exactly who that child is and grow into who they're going to be despite and not because of their, in, their parental influence. Okay, so we're going to dive deeply here because you raised a really interesting question for me. Um, my guess is that most parents live in a fairly compliant culture themselves. Compliance culture meaning there are expectations that they comply, that they don't have agency, that they work when they're asked to work and told to work. And is there a deeper cultural divide here um, between agency and compliance that makes it hard for parents to see their kids having full agency because in fact the parents don't themselves? Well, this is kind of like the question about bringing something to scale. It's really difficult to talk about parents as a group and kids as a group because there's so many different kinds. There's, you know, there's parents who are struggling to have food on their table. Those parents are very different than the parents who are, you know, 
staying at home and getting an option not to work and they're worried about their child getting into an Ivy League school. And the problem that this country has right now, I really believe, is that we've lumped everything into one conversation. And it's the education conversation, but it's, it's so many different conversations at once. So I think that in general, my message, I try to universalize it by saying that whatever the family situation is, whatever the goals and aims and, and the struggles are that you're having, the bottom line is you as a parent are responsible for bringing a unique person into the world and that person has every right to become who they were meant to be, who they are innately supposed to be. And, and, and in order to start there, you have to believe that everyone comes into this life with some contribution to make. And so if you make it your goal to figure out what that contribution is and help your child figure out what that contribution is, then, all of, then that, that's the only question I think that you can ask that can be generalized among all parents. So this is kind of a funny idea, but you know, what, we, what we probably need is some kind of a reality TV show that shows that. Right, you know, it sort of introduce it as the larger cultural narrative because I don't think, you know, again, as your as your book so sort of brilliantly refutes, I don't think most parents uh, approach it that way. And and again, not to lump everybody in a category, but it is an intriguing issue. What about school communities? To what degree uh, are you going to try and work with the community as a whole? Um, the school community is an engaged partner in everything that takes place and, and what kind of processes will you use for that? Will you do kind of an appreciative inquiry piece? Uh, you know, what methodologies are you going to use to engage the whole community? Well, um, I always say to parents that when they sign on to a school, they are joining a community and they're joining not only um, you know, and this is intense in a private school where they pay tuition, but it, but it's but it's for all schools. When you join that community, you, you're not there to receive a product. You're not there as a customer. You're there as having a privilege to belong to a group of people who share values and transmit culture and tradition. And so you have to um, you have to participate for it to work. Uh, you can't have a kid all day at school learning, you know, to be honest and learning that character matters and then the minute their parent picks them up, they get in and they turn on like the speed thing so that the cops can't figure out how fast they're going. Because in that one action you undo sort of all those lessons. Um, so it's very important that the school transmits the culture and that the parents buy into it and then they actually participate in it. And they can participate in it, you know, a lot of different ways. And I think that they participate in it in ways that are changing all the time. So whether it's through volunteer work, whether it's through um, in the upcoming year we're going to have a conference. You know how we all go to conferences, educators, and learn all kinds of great things and come back and, and think, how do the parents learn that? How can we figure that out for them? And um, and so um, I think that um, that having a conference for parents so we can teach them and offering them that opportunity to, to learn along with us is, is a nice idea to, to, to work with. But, you know, parents have to fully take on and understand the responsibility of um, what it takes to raise their children in cooperation with all the people that they come in contact with. And um, it's the leaders 
role, I believe, to continually transmit these messages. The leader always has to be putting these messages out, and it doesn't always have to come out of my mouth if, if I'm a leader or if you're a leader, but it, it's putting messages in, in multiple different places for people to receive them. So one of the parallels that we've seen uh, in a lot of these discussions is the the degree to which students and teachers actually live in somewhat um, comparable lead comparable lives of, of compliance. So as you build systems for the students to work on their strengths, discover and work on their strengths, uh, what are you doing for teachers to help them do the same? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. Um, I'm going to a school tomorrow to give a big workshop on teachers developing their strengths in, in, a, in Columbus, Ohio. And um, we begin our year off with teachers developing strengths. And we do workshops for parents, too. Um, the concept is, is a pretty powerful concept, as, as people who've done it, the concept in business understand. But when you get what energizes you, when you, when you figure that out and you know what your contribution is, that's a, that's a powerful piece of uh, information. Um, and so, you know, schools don't look for volunteers to do things, but if you have programs for them where you can teach them what their strengths are, the parents on back end, I'll get to the teachers in a second, and then you can actually say to them, hey, I need you to do this, and, and I'd love you to volunteer here, and this is where you can put your strength to work. They feel valued. They feel like there's something that they can contribute, and you've noticed them. And, and it's like anybody else. They want to be engaged at the point of where they can feel successful. And so that, that goes with teachers, too. It's interesting to me how working with teachers with strengths has, has not only helped teachers to feel um, validated, but it's also helped them, some of them, to realize that they're actually not meant for the profession. And I say that because I've talked to many teachers who are excellent and love learning, but they're not actually have a strength in teaching. They want to be learners. They don't want to be teachers. Um, and, and as people actually love the profession after we've had workshops like that. Have you given, uh, do you give those teacher workshops often? Are, is there, are there resources anywhere that you have gathered that, um, that others could look at? Yes, I have a, um, I do a whole workshop where I take, um, people take a, the StrengthsFinders, the, um, the Gallup StrengthsFinders test, and then they give me the, um, all the results of it, and then I've created a special spreadsheet. Um, I would put it up here right now, but I'm going to mess everything up if I do that. But if people email me, I can send them this and the description of it. But I'll take all of the um, strengths and, and put them in a, um, a spreadsheet that gives bar graphs. And it will show certain areas of where there's strengths. And I'll divide up um, divisions of teachers. I'll divide up grades. And I'll divide up traditional departments. And I'll divide up job tasks and show them. And then engage people in conversations. So recently when my school did this, one of the issues that the school had was that they had, um, when, we, when we put all of our strengths together as a whole team, it, I was the only person who had any strengths in the category called influencing. And um, really, literally the only person in the whole organization. And so we talked about that. And I said, that puts a lot of pressure on me. And you know, they said, well, thank goodness you're here, because we didn't have any of that before. And it really explains why our name wasn't out there and why, and why this wasn't happening. And, and so, you know, I was able to speak to what I could do and what I couldn't do. I couldn't carry that all on my back. Um, yet, it gave us a, a place to talk about from which 
was not a place of blame, not a place of deficit, not a place of you're not doing this and why are you doing this. It was here's what we have. Here's all that we can contribute. How are we going to make this as well-rounded as possible by all contributing to it? But yes, I have a whole little system I use to, to, to gather that and to facilitate those conversations and have people go through that in appreciative inquiry method where they all you know, dis discuss what the issues are. They bring issues to light that they didn't even know existed and then they solve problems based on just looking at this data. So did I hear you right when you said that some people like learning but don't like teaching and that may not suit them for the profession? Yeah, that happens a lot. It's interesting. And they don't know it. They so, really don't know what's happening. So I would have actually thought it might be the opposite, which is that the person who likes learning might actually be a really good facilitator rather than a teacher. That could be. That could be. That's an interesting point. That could actually be a, a good, a, a great way to think about it, um, in a new model. And um, I haven't worked with too many faculties where they're, they're they're playing that role. But that's a great point of, on transitioning people forward. What I see where teachers are burned out. You know, you always hear about teacher burnout. Is that teachers? To be a really great teacher, you have to have a strength in planning. You have to love to plan because when you plan and, and you know you, you spend time thinking about what's going to happen, then you can walk in there and not have to work so hard um, and sort of let it go where it's going to go and, 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 and think about that. Um, and so teachers, when they fall down, it's because they haven't put that together. They haven't. They don't like planning. They they, they just want to really learn and. Um, that they're not able to get the content out. Now, if you don't have that content to strap you down, which you mostly have, and you have like the whole world at your fingertips, then yeah, you get to learn along with the kids. That's a great point. So we've got uh, about five minutes left for Q&A. I know that Jeff's been desperately anxious to ask a question about uh, job shadowing. And I'm going to let him put that in the chat or raise his hand. If you want to take the mic to ask a question of Jennifer, you can click on the hand icon in the participant window to raise your hand and take the microphone, or feel free to put it in the chat. Jennifer, I'm also wondering if you've heard of a book called I Moved Your Cheese. Yeah. Yeah, that was around a while ago. No, this is a new oh, one. Oh, I Moved Your Cheese. Not Who Moved Mine, but I Moved Your Cheese. Actually, I have heard of that book, but I have not read it yet. So I'm going to give it a high recommendation. It's about a half hour read. Um, uh, I actually sent it to our daughter. It's the basic premise of the book is that the Who Moved Your Cheese is about being willing to change. And this is a Harvard professor who's writing sort of a different take and saying, well, aren't there times when you ought to be the one to move the cheese? Why would someone else be the person in charge? And uh, I don't know if I've told this story live or not, but uh, you know, our daughter actually got turned down from her first choice school, university. She's been in Nepal doing humanitarian work for a year. And I sent her the book and said, you know, there is no plan B. Let's make a new plan A. You know, let's move the cheese. And and she actually wrote a long letter to the admissions office and they accepted her. And she left me this sort of gleeful message, oh, I moved the cheese. That's awesome. I guess we're going to have to move lots of cheese coming up. <laughs> okay, so uh, I don't, Jeff. I don't know if you've put your question in the chat again, but um, 
uh, I think Jeff's question was about job shadowing, and um, and, and I'm not sure if, if there's more detail than that. But um, I, the the internship, the six week internship, is that a job shadowing internship, and is there other job shadowing that takes place? Um, well, I guess you could call it job shadowing, but I I think it's more of um, the best internship, I think, is where people don't just watch, but they're given a chance to actually participate and do something. And with that comes, you know, all the anxiety that would happen and, and the, the opportunity to fail at that. Um, the, um, I had a kid once who, you know, kids always talk about the fact they want to be veterinarians until they actually go into there and they have to smell what it smells like and see what, what actually goes on in the vet's office all day. And I had a kid go down and work in the vet's office, and they got to assist on a um, on a surgery on a dog that had been hit by a car. And that kid came back and said, "That was the scariest thing. I never want to do that again." And I felt so bad, you know. And in his mind, it, he thought that he'd be like petting dogs all day. So I think that actually getting out and seeing what goes on, and then having some responsibility within it is great. When I did training. Um, most of us who are teachers did teacher training, and there were teachers who sat and observed the, the classroom, and there were teachers who, where I, where, what I did was the teacher left and said, here, six weeks are yours, goodbye. And um, so can that happen with kids? Absolutely. You have to find employers who are willing to let them run with some of that responsibility. Jeff, I, uh, I hope I asked the question correctly. He makes the comment back. I think high school should offer 20 opportunities to job shadow over their four years. Um, I think he's agreeing with that argument that you're going to find out a lot that you wouldn't know just from seeing a profession at a distance. Yeah. No, you've got to get in there. You've got to and see. I had a friend who went through um, graduate school at MIT architecture, and he got a job with the firm and it wasn't until he actually was sitting in the firm and he said, I hate being inside. I hate sitting in front of a computer. I don't want to do this at all. He spent all that time and all that money and you know all that hope and dream to find out when he got in the situation that he didn't even like it. Yeah, John C. D. Brown tells a very similar story about um, um, not finding out until you're in graduate school what people actually do uh, in certain professions. So we probably have time for one final question while we're waiting. Uh, tomorrow night, not tomorrow night, Thursday night, Mark Tucker talks about his book, Surpassing Shanghai. I don't think we could have two interviews more diametrically opposed, but we'll see how that one goes. If there's a final question for Jennifer, please feel free to ask it. Otherwise, I'm going to clap for you. I'm hovering over the smiley face and clicking on the applause. Now Becky says, are you giving your students opportunities to be outside other than learning how to use tech tools in the computer to participate? Um, well, because we're so small, we want to be able to connect with other people. So we have grants that we're writing now to have a connected classroom where we have a video conferencing wall. So it's like you're actually there with them. And we're looking for another school to participate with us in that project. Um, so that we can share students and teachers as though we're in one classroom. So that's that's one way. Um, and we're connecting with all kinds of people within the community who are bringing things in. So you know the people who know how to make the films, the people who um, do the robots, all of that. We we're, we have one teacher right now for this inaugural class, and then we will come up with all those different resources to help share all of that. I hope that answered the question. I don't know. 
Yes, and food for thought, Becky's saying she meant outdoors and uh, camping, hiking, etc. So we'll, we'll leave that as a hanging thought. Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on. That was really terrific. I'm going to connect with you independently about this massive online course idea, which I think is really fun. It had me brainstorming during the whole interview. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, Jennifer, I'm hoping that next year maybe you can give us an update. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, and thanks, everyone, for joining in. It was really fun. Thanks for applauding. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> thanks to Jennifer Fox. Thanks to you for being here. Um, again, her book, Your Child's Strengths, just uh, really fun for me to reread, and uh, I'm, I'm going to look forward to doing something uh, further with that uh, with our community. Have a good night, everybody. Take care, and please feel free. We hope you'll join us on one of our upcoming events. Bye for now.